Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankelberg. And I'm Philip Sage in Australia. Hey, Philip. It's good talking to you again, because after the last time we talked, I had it brought up a question for me. I thought, oh, I got to ask you this one. And it's and I know you you love getting a stack of data. And have you ever got one of those where they said, hey, we got all this data uh, on something and they say, can you make any sense of it? Oh man, I can uh, tell you some some horror <laughs> stories, like probably anybody else in the business. Uh, that uh, there are times when you just really get a stack of data that uh, you really uh, struggle to work with, and other times I can uh, probably share stories that uh, you know we've we've got the data, we put it into our Weibull analysis tool, and we're not sure that we believe the results type of uh, starting oh, yeah. points uh, as as we go forward. Um, yeah, it's a it, it's a great topic because uh, we just can't always uh, assume that uh, we've got a set of data that is actually fit for purpose. And uh, the important uh, takeaway point, I guess, for our listeners is that if you've got a set of data, you have to make sure that it's going to match the intent of your analysis software. Otherwise, you're not going to get the right result. Don't you think, Fred? Oh, yeah. No, I agree. It's there's a rare set of occasions I've run into where we we think through, well, what data do we need for this future decision or for this future purpose? And then we go out and design a system to gather that information and, and you know, clean it up and get it in the right format and everything else. Yet nine times out of 10, especially working with clients, they say, well, we, we collect warranty data. And it's a date and a dollar amount. It's not what failed at all, or you know anything else. <laughs> not even what product it is, because the folks doing the warranty want are finance folks, and they're saying, "Well, we just want to keep track of how much money we're spending on this." Yep. And I'm like, "Oh, good grief!" All right, um, and so on and so on. That's just one example of many. Oftentimes, it's a, it, it's a give and take in a compromise situation where you go, well, here's what we'd like to do. Here's perfect information. What do you have? Okay, well, we can maybe use that or maybe use it as surrogate or it might be exactly the right columns we want, yet it's all in, it was handwritten notes kind of scanned and put into the database. I'm like, okay, well, we're close. (laughs) Not much work do we want to do? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting uh, challenge. A lot of times uh, in the asset uh, management space and the reliability space, that's uh, focused on on uh, physical assets uh, versus a uh, warranty on consumer products. Uh, the challenges are, I think, identical, but they, they manifest themselves a little bit differently. Uh, in the asset space, uh, we often have data that's coming out of our ERP or CMMS system. Yep. And, and unfortunately, uh, that data is uh, often uh, incomplete and uh, incorrectly uh, classified. We may only have, uh, for example, uh, replacement data uh, for a certain period of time. I, I ran into 
recently uh, some data sets that they had data for all of the failures that occurred between 2005 and 2020, but they didn't have anything that happened or that uh, was put in service before 2005 and failed before 2005. So they were missing a, a good section of the distribution that they were trying to uh, to, to uh, uh, mathematically regress with the software they were using. And it wasn't uh, the software's fault. It's oh, no. just that, that software was not designed and developed as an algorithm uh, in, in with those capabilities in mind. Uh, another uh, case in point would be in, in uh, the, the end of life uh, type of data being mixed in with functional failure data and uh, oh, trying yeah. to sort out, you know, why or which uh, which type of data that you have. And, you know, if it's functional failure data that you've removed because of the condition, making an informed decision to replace it uh, is uh, is effectively uh, uh, what Lagokaus would call uh, informative censoring. Uh, and so we, we need to be able to understand what kind of data that we have and to uh, potentially uh, exclude certain pieces of data or to model it slightly differently. Yeah. No, um, I mean, it, I think the way you phrase it right off the start is the data fit for purpose. Is it, it's not only is it ready to go into this software package, which is a whole different mechanics of getting things in a format and a structure that, that works. And there's lots, every time I've ever done this, I, I, you know, stick a column of data uh, numbers in uh, in Reliasoft's package, and it says, "Well, we can't do anything with this because you know eight of your thousand lines are are text fields and are not numbers." <laughs> like, <laughs> all right, it'd be really helpful if you told me which of those eight are they are. <laughs> I could always hope for better, but the idea is is that there there's a bunch of mechanics, just clerical stuff. They get your data in good shape. That's not the issue. I think it's more to that fit to purpose. It's, it's when somebody asks me to look at a set of data, is well, what are what question are you trying to answer? Or what decision are you trying to inform? Because looking at a stack of data, I can make you a histogram all day long. But is that useful for you to know what this data means? And that that's where where I start is you know, what do you want to do with this? What, do you, what are you trying to understand? What are you trying to model or, or comprehend or regress or whatever? And and that usually sets people back a lot of times, I find, is that they're like, well, it's we got all this data. What does it mean? Well, why are you even looking at it? <laughs> it's usually not what yeah. they expect me to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, 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 the, the type of purpose that you're using it for, are you trying to do uh, end-of-life renewal modeling? Uh, that's one topic. Uh, or are you trying to understand what's the underlying failure mode that uh, for a repairable system that you're trying to combat or mitigate with mm -hmm. a maintenance strategy? And that's a whole other topic uh, because those are two completely different uh, curves and uh, two completely different sources of data. And often we end up with a mixture of the two sources of data uh, interwoven uh, because we don't have an understanding of how we uh, really need to collect the data. Uh, the other challenge <clears throat> uh, is that if we're not uh, religious and we've actually missed a data point or a failure uh, or a, a, re a renewal replacement in the middle of the cycle, 
now we have a time element that's actually twice as long as it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So as a uh, simple example in words, if I had three failures, the first one ran for 90, the next one ran for 100, and the third one ran for 110. If we add all those up, the operational hours are 300 divided by three failures, we end up with 100 as the mean time between failure. And if I just have two where I've actually missed uh, and I have uh, 190 hours instead of 190 uh, that I've missed that middle failure, now I've got 190 hours uh, plus 110 hours and I'm dividing that by two. So I'm somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 hours for the answer. So it's very, very, very important to understand, especially when you're bringing a sequence of of uh, failures together and collecting them as if they were all started in, in, in service at the same time, uh, like the softwares are designed to uh, work with, that uh, you haven't actually missed a data point in the middle of that. Yeah, no, it's... I've been fortunate. You seem to be a magnet for these left censored sets. Uh, um, <laughs> you've talked about them a number of times. Uh, usually, I'm working with like a say a bottling plant. I was working with, and they and it was they were concerned about shifts. You know, it's the we're going to run this run for five shifts, and so it's a complete clean out and setup, and they do all their alignment stuff, and then they start running, and they were. The question was, is how do they get this thing running at capacity quicker? And it was a part of it was the setup technique they were using and and a bunch of other questions they had. Yet the data they had was, I don't know how many sensors were on this bottling, one piece of bottling equipment. It's a huge chunk of equipment. It bottled, I don't know, 480 bottles per minute or something like that. It was insane. The the mechanical wizardry that went into that thing. But it must have had a thousand sensors on it. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. And so they showed me this database that had absolutely astonishing amounts of information in it, or not information, data. Mm-hmm. You know, this uh, the fill was correct, or it was the cap was put on the right way, or this was aligned correctly, or this got jammed at this location, or the other 250 locations that were possible. It was uh, out of alignment, out of you know this or that, or wrong pressure. It just went on and on and on. And it was all kinds of things that I'm quite sure that the manufacturer of this piece of equipment knew that many customers wanted to sense when something happens so they could alert their 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 crew to go clear a jam or do whatever yet at some point it's absolutely ridiculous how much information they collected and it was just because they could (laughs) (laughs) it's just is i you know i'm sitting down with this manufacturing engineer says well what do you look at? What is actually useful for you to gauge? Is this thing running well or not well? Or what do you go fix or what? And kind of walk through and narrow down all these options to the critical few that actually provided meaningful information for the handful of questions we're working on. And even then they were surrogates. They weren't exactly what you would see if you were standing there watching the machine and what you were what you needed to know to make improvements um, yet i was just blown away by the terabytes of data that they had on this machine 
in a, I don't know, they must have spent as much money for their warehouse as they did for their storage for electronic stuff. Because you could go back years and years of this machine's performance. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, when you got uh, all that, uh, that that level of data, and I've, I've run into that uh, at several occasions in my career, uh, you really need to uh, process that data down to some meaningful information to be able to make decisions and to alert people when portions of the machine are not uh, working correctly. And it, it can be done very successfully. I've done it several times, but you need to uh, deploy what I what I call the reliability performance index on each of those data streams. Hmm. It's a um, the RPK or the reliability performance index is effectively uh, an adaptation of statistical process control to each of your data streams to reduce and calculate uh, uh, the CPK uh, effectively. And uh, uh, if you have a, a CPK that's uh, greater than one then you know that that data stream is largely in control. And hence, I would argue that that part of the machine is reliable. Uh, yeah, that's where I always run into it, though, is, well, what are you comparing it to? What's your, you know, what's the criteria? Is it appropriate for you to achieve what you're trying to achieve? That brings on a separate question. I I, I agree <laughs> with you, though. The high CPK ones, don't bother, you know. Yep. If the requirements are set appropriately or judiciously or with some intent, and you got all this data and you got a CPK of 15, which I run into, mm -hmm. why are you even measuring this anymore? <laughs> why are you collecting this data? Um, yeah. Well, what I found is that if you if you measure that on a 24-hour basis and, and it developed systems and factories that I've stood up from the ground, uh, that uh, were based on that, that, uh, you know, where you had machines that maybe had eight different movements that they would make and you had 250 machines. Mm -hmm. By measuring that, that CPK or the RPK, as I, I coined it, uh, the, the reliability performance index every 24 hours and looking at that in the morning, those that were above one didn't need attention. And you knew exactly what part of what machine and what movement was not working over the last 24 hours that you needed to go uh, investigate as to why, uh, whether that was a solenoid that had become flooded with water or a bushing that was starting to wear. Mm -hmm. those, uh, all of those types of uh, phenomena are detectable and manageable. We actually had a uh, red, yellow, green scoreboard <clears throat> that you would look at all of the machines uh, for the last 24 hours and anything that was yellow or red, certainly. Uh, that would become the focus of your day to go look and watch that machine and try to understand mm -hmm. why uh, it was no longer performing uh, up to its specifications. So it, 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 you know, it's all about if you, it's not about collecting all of that data and putting it in a database. It's about processing that data into useful information that yep. you can then act upon. Don't yep. you think? Oh yeah, no, definitely. I use a very similar approach with the. Uh... I ran into this group and I know I've talked about it on the show a number of times is they, they were doing, I think it was every month. They basically ran their full qualification that they did when they launched the product. And they asked the manufacturer to every month as part of their air quotes here, ongoing reliability testing, um, run all the qual tests again. And, and it was expensive. It was like quarter million dollars worth of testing. And, and I, only by chance heard about this data. I was trying to figure out, well, what do, you, what do we need to actually do to monitor as this 
newest iteration of the same product is coming out. And, you know, I asked one of the guys I was working with, it'd be really easy if you had, you know, data from all the previous generations of your qual data. And we can look at some of the field data and see which ones are actually meaningful for us to monitor. He goes, oh, yeah, they do this. It's They do this full qual test every month. And really? Well, where's the data? Oh, we never look at that. <laughs> and it took me almost two months to track down some poor guy. I'm quite sure he was in a basement in some place in, in some big, massive factory facility. And he said, I'm so happy you called or emailed. I've, I've Nobody's ever asked to look at this stuff. And I have to grant access to it, you know, if somebody wants to look at it, but nobody ever has. And our teams do the testing, comes down here and, and I store it and I alert the finance guys that we can bill them because we got the data. And so the company was getting the, the billing part all the time. And it was absolutely by chance when I heard about it and I spent months looking for it. And I just really didn't have the connections to to follow it all through and get, get to it. I happened to sit down in a crowded cafeteria and the woman sitting across the table from me was that finance person that was paying those bills. And we just started chatting. Well, what do you do here? You know, kind of thing. And I'm working on project XYZ. And she goes, oh, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, if by chance you don't pay the next bill, would I find out who, where that data is? <laughs> and she says, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> yeah. And so I took all this, I took tons and tons of data and, and I played with it a couple of ways and it was actually pretty clean. It was very well documented and stuff. And, and I just ran them all out in control charts and, and I actually wasn't even control charts. I just ran them out in um, what is time order plots mm -hmm. and vast majority. And you could tell were very, very stable, just a simple, I didn't even put control limits on it at that point. I later I did. And then I figure out which, where the specs were from these various tests. And there were some CPKs like in the twenties and there was mm. one test that they did every month that correlated to field problems that occurred like three to six months, three to six weeks later, there'd be a spike of field mm. returns for a re issue that that test probably sensed. And it happened, you know, two, three times a year and not on a, on a set frequency or anything else. Yet it, it accurately predicted all of the blips in their warranty returns. And I said, you know, we might want to monitor that test. But more importantly, you might want to change your design. <laughs> do yeah. something about it. And that's kind of what you're getting at is if you're not going to use it to make decisions or just sort what to do. And I like this idea of the RPK. Um, as your daily check-in and say, all right, where do I need to go focus? Um, that's awesome. Yeah, it really, it's a, it's a very powerful tool and it's an extension of uh, the, the tools that I was taught in my early, early in my career in the steel business. We uh, adopted a uh, process, not quite statistical process control that everybody is familiar with, but it was called integrated process control. And uh, the, the basis of that whole idea was that your process was a black box. And by controlling the key input variables, you could then control the key output variables. Yeah. So we would uh, monitor uh, all of those processes and uh, uh, as, as uh, the key input variables and, and uh, eventually put them all into uh, control charts.
so that we could very quickly tell uh, whether our, our inputs were changing and uh, therefore our outputs would be changing. One of the uh, defects that we would have uh, wouldn't be recognized. Uh, sometimes it wouldn't be recognized until the, in the automotive business, a car or a van body had been made. Kind oh, of wow. a, a lot of value add there. That's expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we, we got to the point where uh, we identified the key input variables, which was a source of varying vibration uh, resonating uh, the, uh, the mill stand that was rolling the steel. And uh, we then realized that we, we, did, we couldn't control the resonance of the mill stand, but we could control the forcing function of whatever the hammer was that was hitting that big tuning fork. And our key input variables then became looking at the, uh, the vibration signatures that were coming out of each of the uh, work rolls that were in the steel mill. So it became a, a very interesting process that over about uh, nine months, we went through three episodes where we learned something new as a result of, of this chatter slipping through to the customer. But ultimately, we were able to predict when we were going to make that defect and when, uh, even if we were making it a little, when the customer couldn't tell that we were making it and it wouldn't show because it would still be hidden by the paint. I think that's uh, so, a I think that's a trade secret thing there. You probably have to delete. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know the whole process of uh, you know applying uh, the the reliability aspects and, and digging into that or integrated uh, process control toolbox uh, to you know to basically say you know all of our inputs are reliable, all of our control functions or control loops are reliable. We should expect that we produce outputs that are very, very reliable and high quality. And ultimately uh, that allowed us to change the uh, first pass quality, which was as low at times as uh, perhaps 60% uh, and, and move it into the high nineties, which yeah. was a big jump back then in the uh, steel business uh, for the way that those businesses operated. Uh, well, one quick story is I I was in, working in a factory and we're making, um, uh, it's a conductive polymer. So we loaded these polymer strands with the uh, carbon black and it came out kind of like a fat spaghetti thread and we extrude, I don't know, 10,000 feet at once. And one of the things we could do is measure the resistivity of it over a short distance. And it mm -hmm. was, it was pretty, pretty real time data. And so I'm sitting down there, we're trying to develop this thing and see what we could do with it. And, and because we, as we're manufacturing this, and we didn't have as a really good um, way to measure it until this device was installed and we started monitoring it. Because otherwise, it'd wait until it was ready to ship and we'd measure it in QC and it was either pass or fail. And at that point, you really couldn't do anything. Um, and the, the folks operating the extruder, we finally put duct tape over the controls. Once you set the temperature, don't touch it. And we thought about removing the controls because they would just change it. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. They'd turn it down a little bit, you know, it was mm -hmm. like, but there was no feedback mechanism for them to, to know if that was useful or not. So we're trying to solve all those problems. And I'm sitting there one afternoon and I'm watching this meter and all the numbers were getting off of it. And every now and then it would just spike like an order of magnitude in resistivity. Like, and the, the forklift would drive by. I'm like what in the yeah. world? How how I'm I'm going through how does you know vibration of this vehicle loaded up going by ten feet from us affect this or you know what's going and it's a 
uh, it's an extruder is hot and it's dumping the stuff out about five inches away into a cold water bath to quench it. And I'm sitting there in t-shirt because it's warm to sit next to this piece of equipment. And every time the forklift went by, we saw spike. And I'm like, how in the world is that? Do you have any ideas what would be related to a forklift going by and a polymer extrusion process changing its resistivity because temperature was a big deal and we're trying to monitor those crude temperatures and the melting temperatures and all that stuff you have any have a clue i can't imagine obviously either be some amount of vibration i imagine from a weighted forklift potentially that's my initial thought. And I just was scratching my heads. And then I, I stood up to kind of look around, see if any of my buddies were around, any other engineers are around, anybody was around that could help me figure out what's going on. And I saw the forklift coming through the forklift door out loading the truck. And every time they went in and out, they opened and closed the door for just a few seconds. Mm. And it was cold outside, really cold outside. You couldn't feel the draft where I was sitting, but the product could. <laughs> so, I, so we started, we did a little controlled experiment. So right, let's run for five minutes or 10 minutes and drive the forklift back and forth. And the guy in the forklift thought I was absolutely off my rocker. Um, so did the extrusion operator. And then we opened and closed the door without a forklift. And sure enough, we got the spikes. But it was just, that was a baffling hour. <laughs> but the data gave us a, a one of the a big chunk of variability and we knew it was seasonal we knew we had way more unsettled results in the winter mm. it was the forklift arm and so we set up barriers and tried to keep that that cold draft from affecting it and and did a bunch of weird measures to make that happen but sometimes mm. you set up data collection for specific purpose and in as you know looking at that harmonics and the vibration you had and measuring that signature that was probably not there to start with but as you develop the what do you need to measure and that's where i love getting data sets we know what we're trying to figure out and then we go get the data but yeah. barring that we both talked about ideas of using control charts or or uh cpk or rpk reliability process index um as a way to give you a, a, an informed information out of the data stream that's going on. And the other part is if you're looking at warranty data or uh, data from your technicians are gathering from what they're repairing and so on, I find it very helpful to go sit down and talk to those folks and say, this is what we're looking for. This is why it's important. And this is, you can't just make it up or you know here's why we need something different than just a dollar amount or i replaced 10 parts in their notes and you know it's not really helpful here you know kind of thing and try to help them understand why it's important to them too well yeah and ultimately you have to solve a problem that uh, you're 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 interested in ours in the steel business but that you referred to uh, none of that equipment existed when we started when we finished we were collecting um, about 30 channels and 32 gigabyte worth of uh, data a day at, at wow. very high speed. And then we could uh, actually go back and when we had a defect that would manifest itself six weeks later, we'd pull that, uh, that CD uh, off the shelf and then replay that day uh, it's worth of production and then try to figure out from the signatures 
why did that defect appear and we not know about it? And we were able to, by doing that, uh, you know, routinely go back and, and develop new alarms, new, new ways to detect new algorithms. And ultimately we were able to suppress the defect completely uh, from, a, from the manufacturing process. So you're right. Uh, if you do, uh, you know, tackle it, and you know what you're going after, or try, or at least trying to solve, then the data that you're collecting uh, is very valuable. Unfortunately, a lot of our uh, data historians collect the sensor data that's available to control the process, and that's not always need necessarily what's uh, fully needed to control the quality or the throughput. Yep. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that's why I started right away with, you know, what are you trying to do? And I think we both talked about that. Get the data that you need um, and go from there. So anyway, a couple of thoughts there. Just, you know, we're data geeks, Philip. There's no doubt about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> we want to use it for something useful. That's that's why we're that way. Um, but, you know, if, if you're listening to this and, and you've got a big stack of data or somebody just dropped off, a, you know, here's the database. Can you, what's this mean? Hey, we feel for you, you know, go ask the right questions, you know, pursue it, see what problems you can help solve. Uh, start with what are you trying to do? Because it will guide what kind of analysis actually is, is necessary. You may not have the data for it. That's the first step. Do you have the right stuff to fit the purpose? Um but check it, you know, we all go through those processes. Um, but if you're listening to this, we'd love to hear your stories or questions about this process of dealing with data and too much data or not the right data, all those things. Let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. And you can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us. Philip and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and our about pages. So there's plenty of ways for you to get in touch with us. What we do with that question or comment that we get is we try to get back to you right away with some useful information if we can. And then it comes up on the queue for us. The uh, Here's topics to think about or talk about. So we're always looking for what questions and comments and ideas you have. And um, so don't be shy. It's a big part of what motivates these uh, episodes for us. So we, we'd like to hear from you. All right. So, Philip, you're just starting your day there in in uh, in in oh, I'm John Melbourne. I'm, I was thinking Monterey, but that you're a little further south than Monterey. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, just starting in the morning, uh, finishing a cup of coffee here in Melbourne, and uh, getting ready to uh, go on to my next meeting. So, uh, hey, talk about data. We got a chance to chat, and um, you know, to our, to our listeners, if you have a great data set, a great data problem and you want to chat about it or something that you can share, let us know. And uh, with that, I'll throw it back to you, Fred. All right, great. Well, thanks, Philip. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a great day. All right, you too, Fred. Bye now. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.